Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. Okay, so I get to introduce our not guest speaker. Uh, Tim is away. Uh, he's actually, because some of you uh, might be a bit new and might not know, we actually sent Evan and Sandy Wickham many years ago now to go plant a church in San Diego called Park Hill. Awesome. We love them. We love what God's doing. And Tim has gone to be with them uh, to support them this weekend. But a great opportunity to then invite someone else. So this is Chris Nye. Um, and I say he's not our guest speaker because he, uh, he's done ministry, lots of different places, been a pastor. Uh, he, he writes, he's written books, articles, things like that. Um, but he's moved back to Portland. He's finishing a doctorate. Pray for him. Yeah. I, my heart goes out. It's like, that's an intense thing to finish. Um, and so welcome back to Portland. Thank and you. then this is your church you've landed in at yes. the moment. And yeah. so it's awesome to have him able to speak to us today. And so I'm going to pray for you. Thank you. Yeah. So Jesus, thank you for Chris. Thank you for what you're doing in, uh, in him and his family. Thank you that he's here. Uh, we pray a blessing over him. Actually, we pray that we as a family can get behind the things that you want to do as a part of this family and use him, Jesus, stir in his heart and his mind those things you want to say to us right now. We pray that you would use him to speak to us today and give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say to this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, amen. over Thanks, to you. Richard. Thank you. Hey, guys, how you doing? Good. Uh, this is my first time to the second service. I'm going to be honest. Uh, I usually sit over there first service. And as Richard said, I've uh, been doing ministry for 15 years and preaching and pastoring a little bit in Oregon for uh, born and raised over in Southeast and uh, you know, did ministry over on the West side for a little bit uh, until seven, six and a half years ago. No, no, seven years ago, my wife and I moved to the Bay Area of California suffering for the Lord under rent prices. Uh, my wife's a doctor. She was doing residency down there. We did ministry in the inner city of San Francisco and then in San Jose, California. And it's a thrill to be back. We moved back to Southeast, bought a house there, and we're just thrilled to be here. And it was great coming back. We didn't have to church shop. We know the pastors. And we know Tim and Brittany have known them for years and just respect their leadership so much. So we thought, we'll just you know throw in with the Jesus Church and give and serve and um, be here for a little bit to see where the Lord's taking us next. It's a joy to be with you and a joy to call you church family, even though we, we haven't met much, maybe. Uh, this is our first time meeting. I'll show you a picture of my family. Uh, I've got a three and a half year old Jude and there's Allie, my wife of 13 years next 
uh, month, and uh, Jude is, uh, you know, he's usually the start to my sermons, let's be honest. He's like my sermon illustration in the beginning. I told him when he was born, a tiny baby, he wasn't really understanding me or whatever, but I said, you're going to be a lot of sermon illustrations. I'm sorry. I just want to pray for you right now, how the Lord will use that. Um, but we're going to continue the series in Luke 23. Um, and if you have a Bible, you can go to Luke 23. If you don't have a Bible, there's people that will give you one. And as the Bibles are being passed out, I will tell you the most recent kind of revelation Jude has given me as my son, as a dad. Um, his favorite word right now is the or phrase, his favorite phrase that he uses all the time is, I can do it. Has anybody had a three and a half year old ever? And I can do it is like their mantra. They say it all the time. And uh, what's funny is most of the time he can't, okay? Most of the time he can't. Now, when he says, I can do it, and he's putting on his shoes, it's, it's cute. He can do it. I've, we've taught him that. We've set this example for him, okay? But when he's running towards baggage care, uh, claim at PDX, like, and the bags are moving along the carousel, and there's a 45-pound suitcase that is ours. And I'm like, yeah, that's our, our suitcase. And he says, I can do it. I'm like, buddy, this is where it runs out for you as a three and a half year old. I'm so sorry. Uh, I will take over and I will do it. And I think that one of the things, though, I'm learning, like every time we tell or we see children do something like that, we call it childish, right? Something that a child would do, like like not really know the full weight of their abilities. Every time I see that as a dad, though, one thing I'm struck with is usually there's something in what Jude is developing into that I am also developing into as a disciple of Jesus, right? It's like a mirror. Like, it, it seems silly, but upon further inspection, it's really a place in my own life that I struggle, which is when I look to God and say that to him, I can do it. I got this. I can take over. You know, as a, as a parent, you're constantly setting an example for your child, but you're also constantly substituting your life for their life. Like, Jude does not know how many forms I've filled out for that kid. He does not, I've just filled out so many forms for him as a child. He doesn't know what money is, what currency is, how many things I've paid for, right? So there's ways in which he just can't do for himself what he needs to do to live. Well, his mom and I get to do things for him to help him live. God works as both our example. He sets a a, a pace for us and gives us commands. And he himself, as the God-man Jesus, walked in obedience and did those things. He was an example. But today we're going to look at how Jesus and how God is also our substitute. How he performs an action in his death on the cross that we could never do on our own. And how freeing that is to us as Jesus followers. And if you aren't following Jesus yet, something to captivate your mind. Now, we don't know each other super well, but I'm going to warn you, we're going to jump into like deep, deep waters today, together. I hope that's okay, because we're going to the cross with Jesus. And when I was given this text, uh, you know, when Tim told me what what I was going to preach on, I I thought, well, we'll be friends after this, because we're going to get deep together, okay? You ready? All right, Luke chapter 23. Would you stand to your feet as we read God's word? Luke chapter 23. Let's start in verse 26. This is God's word. Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people, of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, 
do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the Son of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. This is God's word. You can be seated. When we read about the cross, we're reading in treacherous territory. This is a dramatic and bizarre moment that will reveal to us any way in which we have what Tim Keller has called a middle-class spirit, middle-class spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the what in spirit? The poor in spirit, yeah. Tim Keller juxtaposes that and says, often we need to remember the calling to be poor in spirit because we have a middle-class spirituality. We say to God, I can do it in ways that will never satisfy, that will never work. The middle-class spirit is the one that says, God, I'll take it from here. But the people who are poor in spirit, they have no misconceptions about death. They have no belief that they can do it on their own. In fact, the poor in spirit's cry is not, I can do it. The poor in spirit's cry is, I can't do it. Someone must do this on my behalf. I need not just an example, I need a substitute. And this text that we just read, it's asking us, are we with Jesus for a little assistance, a little help with our anxiety, a little wisdom for a relationship that's gone wrong, a little comfort to live in the 21st century where the world's suffering is on display 24-7, just, just a little help. Are we with Jesus so that he could be just our example, or are we with Jesus so he might also become our substitute? When you're reading this passage, you're wondering, what is the meaning of this event? This man being led away, women weeping at his side, criminals mocking him, religious officials mocking him, and him dying. This is the Jesus who worked miracles and taught and cared for the poor and brought along disciples. What is happening here? When you, when you get to the end of this gospel as you're reading it, if, you, if this is your first time through it, you should be asking questions that all of us should be asking, which is why, why this death? Why this death on a cross? Why under Roman rule? Why does it happen this way? And it's strange too how Jesus's earliest followers, the ones who were there at this moment and in the days preceding, they actually didn't know what was going on. Nobody knew the rich significance of the cross until the Holy Spirit poured out on the community called the church and the church began reading backwards from the cross into the Old Testament and then back over to the cross. And then and only then through the power of the Spirit and the word of God did suddenly the revelation of the meaning of the cross come off the pages and come off the historical event itself 
suddenly these followers of Jesus began to articulate the things that are core to our belief as Christians, the core of our faith. One of the earliest followers, Paul, wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. He calls the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, what we just read, he calls it the power and the wisdom of God. In fact, he says it is salvation for those who believe. He also says this, though, in 1 Corinthians 1, that most cultures, whether they are Jewish or not Jewish, says whether you're in the story of God as a Jewish person or out of it as a Greek, east or west, in or out, he says a lot of cultures, they'll see that story from Luke 23 and find it absurd. They'll find it stupid. His word in the Greek is foolishness. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross, like the message of the cross, what we just read, it's folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The earliest Christians, they saw something remarkable. The only way to understand the cross is to understand it as a mechanism by which God was saving the entire world. Not through an army, but through a cross. Not through a politic, but through the cross. Not through cultural persuasion and influence, but through this, what we just read. How would God do that? Let, a couple chapters later, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 calls Jesus Christ our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed once and for all. That's a reference to the Old Testament. That's Paul looking at the cross, reading backwards and going all the way back to the Old Testament and finding this practice and this moment in Exodus where a lamb was slain so that lives would be saved. And he imports that and says, when Christ was slain, the sins of the world were put on him. In Hebrews 2.17, it says, Jesus had to be made like us that he, Jesus, might make atonement for the sins of the people. So you see, these words, atonement or sacrifice or Passover, they are all terms that are packed with meaning in the Old Testament, that when you read from the cross back into the Old Testament, you realize the strange, bizarre, remarkable, and glorious significance of the story that we just read. It's not the story of a man dying. It's the story of the world being remade. Atonement, this word, it means to cover over or to take on someone's sin. And in the Old Testament, there was practices of atoning sacrifices. They would, you maybe read about it if you've dabbled in the Old Testament and then you got scared and moved back to Romans or something. And you got scared again and you're like, back to Mark. Um, you're just like <laughs> bouncing around. Um, in the Old Testament, there was this system of sacrifice, uh, right? The killing of animals. And it wasn't to make God happy who was always mad. It was to demonstrate that they, as the people of God, do not just need an example. They need a substitute. They need somebody to live on their behalf and die on their behalf in order to be made right with God. And this practice followed up until this day called the Day of Atonement, where the people of God would say, hey, we've been sacrificing for all year but we're now gonna have a day where all the sins that we haven't confessed, that we do not know, will be laid on this lamb. We'll kill this lamb. We'll send a scapegoat. A goat would go, that's where that word comes from. A goat would go out of the city and there would be atonement for the sins of the world, of the community of God. Well, in the New Testament, particularly like Hebrews 9 and 10, if you go read that, shows that this ritual of the day of atonement, it was this type that was pointing us to what Jesus would be, that on Jesus, the sins of the world 
would be placed and his death would make an end to the days of atonement. 1 Peter 2.24 puts it most succinctly. Peter, writing this letter to churches scattered across Asia Minor, he said this, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah. Again, he was reading his Bible from the cross back into the Bible. He says, by his wounds, you have been healed. By the scourging that we just read about, the salvation of the world would be brought about. First Peter, by his wounds, you are healed. He's quoting Isaiah saying, in the language of the cross, God took the penalty of the sin of all the world and he placed it on Jesus on the cross, removing it from us so that he would bear it himself. This is called, theologians use this term, substitutionary atonement, that Jesus gave his life. And if you're thinking, well, Chris, this sounds like just stuff his followers kind of developed after he died to explain his embarrassing death, you would not have read the gospels then because Jesus, what was he obsessed with doing all the time? He's healing people, yes. He's teaching people, yes. But do you know what he's also doing? Telling people all the time, his closest followers, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. And when I die, in three days, I will rise from the dead. He puts it very starkly in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, no one, no one takes my life from me. I give my life as a ransom for many, as a payment, as a substitution as an ability to pay for the sin. So when we read Luke 23, we are not reading the story of a victim. We are reading the story of Jesus Christ inhabiting his messianic mission. I will die. I, nobody takes my life from me. I'm laying it down freely, freely as a ransom for many. The atonement is what we see in Luke 23. And so might we look back at this story I just read and take the characters, the way they're viewing this, how do they see the atonement? And how does the atonement answer the characters that we met along the way? Richard mentioned to me that the podcast on the House of Learning explores these characters that we meet along the way in, verse 20, or in chapter 23. Simon of Cyrene, who helps Jesus carry the cross, these daughters of Jerusalem that are weeping, these women that are following Jesus, weeping, and two criminals, uh, the criminal on his right and the criminal on his left. Perhaps through understanding these moments in this text, we're gonna see that each character raises a, what I'd call a salvation question. In other words, why do I need my sins atoned for? Again, that's my middle-class spirit speaking, but I'll confess it, I have it. Why do I need my sins forgiven? Some salvation question will rise up, but then there's an atoning answer in each of these moments throughout Luke 23, which is how the cross satisfies those questions, how the cross answers those very questions. And so let's look through these four characters. Simon of Cyrene, we meet him at the top of the text I just read, Luke 23, 26. And it says that he's from Cyrene, which would have been far away, and he might have been there during the Passover as a, as a Jewish person or as what they'd call a God-fearer, who would be somebody who just worships Yahweh but is not ethnically Jewish. We don't know much about Simon, but we know this. This is what we know about him. They pull him from the crowd, and he carries the cross of Jesus. I told you, um, we're going to get into this, some deep waters together because I think that when you talk about God's atonement for us, 
we have to know the weight of what he's atoning. What is he taking on? When I look at Simon, I think about how the crosses we bear talk about atonement for us and our need for atonement. The crosses that we are carrying. Um, Notice Simon carries the cross. They put it on him. And it says in the text that Jesus was ahead of him. I know times in my life I have felt so burdened by suffering, so overwhelmed by something. I can sometimes feel like Simon, who's standing behind Jesus, carrying this cross going, God, why do you, do you care? Do you know what I'm bearing? Do you know what I'm carrying? Do you know the stress? Do you know the anxiety that I'm carrying? Do you know the constant worry? Do you know the grief that follows me every day? The salvation question rising from Simon is, does God care about or know the pain that I carry? Simon is carrying this cross, Jesus ahead of him. When, when will this be over? Will it be over? Do you even know this cross that I'm carrying? The daughters of Jerusalem that Jesus meets at the next moment, they're weeping and crying, and they show just the emotional depletion that a lot of us go through. You know, it's like even times when your personal life is going good, it's like stuff in the globe on your phone, the suffering of the world is so available to us, there's a weight that we just cry, lament. And it's not just, yeah, it's not just crying, it's crying out. You know, there's a difference, right? You can cry and still be pretty. Crying out is ugly. You are bringing your grief and your lament before the Lord, things that have haunted you through your life or stuff that you can't get away from that's just on your phone, the news of the day, something causing you great despair. There's so much despair right now, man. There's so much, so much people are, maybe that's you today, that you're, you're, you're just filled with like, despair means like a lack of hope, a lack of a future of, 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 of what the future looks like. And this strange passage, you know, the women who are crying, Jesus actually tells them something very alarming, something I actually don't want to hear from Jesus when I'm crying, which is this. You think you're sad now? It's about to get so much harder. You know what he says to them? Don't cry now. Cry for your children. Because he says right now, he says, the, the, depending on your translation, the wood or the tree is green, like it's, it's, the tree is flourishing. He says, but there's coming a day when, when it's, it's going to be dry. It's, it's, it's going to be withering. Um, it makes me think that the question is like, rising from these women, will it always be this way? And what happens if it gets worse? You see, scholars look at this passage where Jesus, he actually quotes Hosea 10.8, that passage, if you remember from the reading where it says that the hills might fall on us or that, you know, the, 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 um, yeah, that the hills would fall on us or the mountains would fall on us. Like that our life, we would wish that our life would end. Jesus responds to this. He knows his life will be vindicated in the resurrection, but he warns them that something harder is coming. And really specifically, he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem because the Roman army was about to take over the temple and, and, and just bring sacrilege to the entire area. The city of God would be overrun by Roman rule. It was not about to be better, it was about to be worse, in fact. And the question is, 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 is in this text, which is, wait, I thought the resurrection means everything's better. I thought the resurrection, I thought Jesus going to the cross and the resurrection means my life will be good. 
and steady. But Jesus actually kindly and clearly says, things actually might get worse. Things actually might get worse. I told you we were going to be in deep waters today. Then he meets the thief, the first thief, and the executioners who meet his self-sacrificial love with a very biblical term called scoffing. You don't probably use that that much these days, scoffing or mockery, but it is the common English dialect of the internet. We live in a world of scoffing and of mockery, and that kind of mockery was thrown at Jesus as he's going to the cross. And really the heart there is a heart maybe, I mean, it's a big enough room, somebody in here may be wrestling with this. I have wrestled with this through my story with Jesus, which is this question. Do I even need a God to atone for my sin? Maybe, maybe you're past middle-class spirituality and you're upper-class spirituality. Like you got your podcasts on lock and you've got your books and you've got mindfulness and you're just kind of living life as a spiritual master, just staying balanced and staying full, doing it all on your own. Thinking, why do I need a God? And this cross as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, looks foolish. It, it looks absurd that God would actually use this moment of suffering to atone for the sins of the world. There's this pride that's in these um, mockers who are yelling at Jesus. But then we meet the second thief. After the first thief, look at Luke 23:39. The one of the criminals, the first thief, is the one mocking. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This isn't the way it should, you know, he, he thinks this is absurd. This is foolishness. Now verse 40. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, like he's like, we deserve this pain and punishment for we're receiving our due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong, speaking of Jesus. And he looks at Jesus, he says, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies to him and says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When I read that verse of that thief in desperation and the response of Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise, even that word paradise, which means heaven, the place where God exists. You will be with me where God exists. It's like suddenly a beautiful aroma is opened upon the whole text we just read. Like we just read a, an entire number of verses of violence, blood, and mockery, pride, execution. And suddenly that word for me, it's like the whole text is smelling so much more beautiful after that. Why? Because Jesus begins to assert not his victimhood, but his victory. I think there's a misnomer in the church that only the resurrection's the victorious part. But it's actually the crucifixion and the resurrection that's the victory. Jesus is sitting there and he looks at this man and he says, you will be with me in paradise. The authority and the power and the work and the word of God is right there. And suddenly the answers to all of our deep and 
longing and empty salvation questions that have been crying out across this text find their satisfaction. Suddenly, through that word, we look back on the text to see all these characters have the hope of the gospel available to them. You look back at Simon, and you realize, wait, Jesus is going to be in paradise. He's in control of this whole thing, and he's the one nailed to the cross. So we see back to Simon that actually, although he was crying out, God, where are you? Do you understand the pain that I'm in? We see that Jesus completes and carries a cross we could never bear. What was once dark news is now good suddenly. That Simon was carrying the cross for a brief time, was he not? But he handed it over. He gave it to Jesus. Simon was not the one whose hands were nailed. Simon was not the one whose side was pierced. Simon was not the one whose sins of the world were, no, that was on Jesus. And so Jesus actually takes our burden from us And death is simply us handing our cross back to Jesus. Death is simply re-understood and radically reinterpreted when we understand the gospel. I quoted Tim Keller earlier about the middle-class spirit. He died recently. When he died, many people were circulating this quote that is perfect for this moment in the sermon. He said this, all death can do to a Christian is make their life infinitely better. All death can do to a Christian is make their life infinitely better. The cross is over at our death. The burdens are done at our death. The weight is over at our death. We don't take the cross into heaven with us. We rely on the atonement of Jesus who took the cross for us on our behalf. And so even if things are difficult, we don't finish carrying the cross. Jesus does. We don't bear our sin forever. Jesus already bore it on the cross, which gives us good news to the daughters of Jerusalem. I told you, Jesus met them. Like, how how do you make that better? How do you make that good news where he says, it's actually going to be worse. There's going to be a time coming where people are going to wish they were dead rather than living. The despair will be so thick. Well, again, once we hear the word paradise, it should click in our brains that something else is going on. Jesus is laying his life down and going to the Father, ascending to the Father at the right hand. He is going to paradise. This makes me think something, this world is not all there is. Jesus provides with, for us and with, uh, uh, provides us with a future we could never create. The atonement, the covering of sin, it actually allows God to lay new ground this foundation of a new creation he is waiting to create. The question that the daughters are, will it always be this way? It might get worse, but it will not always be this way. Emphatically, through the word paradise and through the authority of Jesus and what his death means, it will emphatically not always be this way. No, a day is coming. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That's one of the oldest things that the church across 2,000 years has repeated. The world does not end at a cross, it is renewed through the cross. And the tree was green when Jesus is here, and it is, yes, now dry. And some of you might be feeling the weight of the world's going, this is drier than ever. But there's a time coming where the tree is replanted and the beauty and the glory of God fills the earth. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, 16, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
And I say to that scripture, by the way, it's okay to compare. I know he says it's, <laughs> I consider it not worthy of comparing, not worth comparing, but sometimes you got to compare. Sometimes you have to see, yes, things are getting worse and things are harder and one bad thing is happening after another, but could it be that the cross is speaking to me something beyond me? That actually, even though things might get worse, God has the power to make all things new through his word and through his cross. He's creating a future we could never create. The thief, how does God respond to the mockers who say, do I even need God? The upper class spiritual spirit that says, I've got my spiritual life on lock. Well, Jesus grants forgiveness to those who do not know they need it yet. Other than Jesus speaking and saying to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise, he speaks another time in the passage that I read. And what does he say? As he's being mocked, as the criminals are being crucified, what does he say? Probably the most powerful line Jesus utters, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They know not what they do. The work of the cross is not dependent on our articulated understanding of its benefits. Christ's atonement is sufficient in its own and on its own. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I love the word for in there as an English major. It's like because, it's almost as if Jesus is actually forgiving because we'll never know the weight of our sin. Not because we will know the weight of our sin, He's like, no, they'll never know the weight of their sin. And this is good news for those of us that are prideful and arrogant and think they got their spiritual life on lock. Why? Because God looks upon me and upon you and says, oh, middle-class spirit, even though you think you've got it handled, maybe a day's coming where you'll be humiliated, but even in your wrestling of your pride and your own arrogance, I know sin you'll never know, and I've still forgiven it. And the truth is, all of us do not know the full weight of our wrongdoing. There's ways my pride infects my son that I'll never, I'll never know. I'll pay for a therapist later to tell him. But um, <laughs> no, it's like all of, like you feel this maybe as a parent or as a sibling or as a, just in friendships. You may have the best motivations and intentions, but still what we bring to the table hurts people. And we'll never know. We'll never know all the ways that we hurt people. You wanna know the good news? The good news is Jesus does know all of that and still went to the cross to atone for that. So I think there's a wonderful practice in Christian communities to confess the sin that we know but it can become like a laundry list of trying to keep track of ways in which we've disappointed God. What if we instead just brought our unknown sin to him? God, I, I don't know where I've been wrong. We join the psalmist, we say, create in me a clean heart. Or the other psalm in Psalm 139, search me and know me and lead me in the way everlasting. Like God searches you and God knows you. We don't need to become completely self-aware of all things, at some point we won't know what we need. God knows what we need and has granted it to us. I did ministry for a number of years in the inner city of San Francisco, the Tenderloin District. Darkest, one of the darker places in the nation, but also one of the most beautiful. Full of poverty, addiction, injustice. Um, 
You know, it's the culmination of many bad policies that have led that community to where it is. Tons of, just layers upon layers of sin. I remember meeting this guy, I was gonna baptize Lawrence, and we were meeting together up to his baptism. He said, Chris, I, I can't tell you all the bad things I've done because I don't remember it, or if I told you, like, there's legal obligations. I mean, th this is how weighty the sin was, but he was filled with anxiety because he wanted to be able, he kind of had an old school vision of a pastor. He kind of wanted the pastor to know all the bad things he did. And I told him, I said, Lawrence, you don't have to tell me all the bad things you've done. And I took him to this verse. <laughs> you just need to confess your need for Jesus because Jesus knows things you and I will never know about you. And he still grants forgiveness to those that do not know we need it. And also through the second thief, grants forgiveness to those who desperately know they need it. It's like the atonement is so vast that it covers the areas in our life we will never know and the areas in our life we can't sleep because we know about them. The darkness that haunts our hearts, the, the, the conversations we replay over and over again, it is never too early, it's never too late for Christ. Christ saves across our knowledge of our sin, whether we know it or not. This cross in Luke 23 that we read about, it satisfies our need. Even if we spent, I find it interesting the second thief was a, uh, the second criminal was a thief because all of us spend our life stealing in some way, stealing attention or stealing resources from people or, I mean, we're all at the end of the day robbing each other. And Jesus looks at us and says, you will be with me in paradise. And emphatically in that moment ends all the days of atonement. All the days of atonement are now over. No longer do you need to yearly have this big festival that re-ups our forgiveness and re-ups the atonement because the atonement has been made in the cross. All of these stories that I just read lead us to the final criminal who Jesus responds to in the most gracious and open-hearted way. And it, ask, it asks this question, like on what is your life based? What, what basis is your life and your death? It, it, this, this text confronts us with the fact that Jesus, the God-man died, we will all die one day and all of us are living off of a great premise a great foundation on which we build everything that we do. And if we are building a Christian life and becoming like Jesus with the first person, I do this and I do that, we will not last long. No, friends, you don't just need an example. Luke 23 is here to tell you, you need a substitute. The cry of your heart might be, I can do it, but I pray to God we read this text and we say, I can't. I can't complete the cross I can't live if life is gonna get worse. I can't live with this upper class or middle class spirituality. I can't do it. Jesus, you can. Jesus, you are the one who suffices. You are the one who supplies all of the needs. You are the one, not because I or because my life or because I put my faith in Jesus. No, we are only saved because he did what he did, because he died, because he raised. And for us, now is the time for us to respond and come to the full weight of the atonement. Jesus is not here to minorly improve your life. He's here to replace it. Which is why the thief, what does he say? 
He doesn't say, Jesus, help me out here. Jesus, maybe give me some ideas. Or Jesus, I believe in you. Note that the thief does not ask for Jesus to be in his life. His life's over. He doesn't ask for Jesus to be in his life. He asks for his life to be in Jesus's. Remember me when you go into your kingdom. I know you're going somewhere that I could never go unless you go there on my behalf. Oh, suddenly the cross becomes all the good news for all of us. None of us can get to paradise. Without Jesus, we are all the thief on the cross. And we all have to say, I cannot do it. I'm counting on you, Christ Jesus, to do it on my behalf. He's the one who's won. He's the one who has the victory. And he's the one whose death is complete. And so some of you maybe have never heard that good news. Maybe some of, some of you have been so far from that good news, there's a ton of religion garbled up in your mind. The response today is to come to the gospel. This is the good news of the Christian faith. This and so much more of all the ways in which we lack, but God lives. And so I invite you to receive this gospel in the same manner the thief on the cross received this gospel. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, I know you know me. May I know you through Jesus now. Laying your life before God and saying, my life is yours because God, I can't and you can. And so friends, would you stand to your feet as we just respond to this good news? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.